The text for this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 26 through 8, 5. If you are using the Pew Bible, you will find the text on page 1,426. Page 1,426. Hebrews 7, 26 through 8, 5. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law appoints a son, made perfect forever. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that these high priests also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect a tabernacle, For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Let's begin right at the end where Phil just left off in verse 5 with these words quoted from Exodus 2540, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now the point here is that when God came down, assembled his people Israel at Mount Sinai and, and established a kind of constitution with them in the Mosaic law and told them how to build the tabernacle and dress as priests and do the sacrifices. He was not making something up ad hoc. That's what this text is saying. He was considering heavenly, eternal reality, looking at it in heaven, not made by human hands, and then in his infinite, humble creativity, Creating something that would be like a shadow and a copy of that. That's what that verse says. So that the whole Old Testament regime, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the feasts, the sacrifices, when you contemplate all of that, if you've got eyes to see through shadows, you see more. You see God, you see his ways with God and man. You see his Trinitarian relations. There is something being said about God, some pointer 
forward and upward from all of these shadow-like realities in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus came into the world as the son and the final high priest, not to be the best and last shadow as a priest. He came to end the shadows because he is the reality. Now, in the first service, there are a lot of kids. There are not as many kids in this service, so I used a kid illustration, but adults always like kid illustrations, and so... And this always happens to adults. I mean, this did happen to every adult in this room, probably. It happened to me. That's why I thought of it. You're in... There's a kid. You're in a uh, a grocery store, and you've been holding on to your mommy's hand, remember? And she lets go, steps away, and suddenly you realize mommy's not there anymore. And this big lump rises up in your throat and you're scared and you don't know where to turn. And you look this way and that way and all you see is cereal and detergent. And you run to the end of the aisle and just as you get to the end of the aisle and the tears are just about to break out of your eyes, you see a shadow on the floor. And it looks just like mommy. Now, let's ask you a question here. Which is better? The shadow that makes you feel so much hope that mommy must be right around the corner or mommy stepping around the corner and being there in the flesh. And all the kids in the first service said, mommy's better. And that's the right answer. Now, application. Christmas is Jesus stepping out from around the corner and the shadows are gone. The priesthood is gone. The tabernacles are gone. The temple is gone. The animal sacrifices are gone. The yearly feasting is gone. Circumcision is gone. Vestments are gone. It's over. Why? Because they were all, according to verse 5, shadows, pointers, copies of what? Of Christ, mainly. And so Christmas is the replacing of shadows with reality. Somebody asked you at work, what do you think about Christmas? One sentence that you can use this year is, Christmas is the replacement of shadows with reality. And then they'll ask you what you mean. And then you, and you can tell them the whole story. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. Now the main point in what has been said is this. I love it when biblical writers do that for us. Sometimes we have to do it ourselves, but here he's doing it for us. The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest, such. He's just referred to a sinless, glorious son. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, not the shadow tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So the main point of what he's been saying is we've got 
a high priest so unlike the old priests in the Old Testament. He's not weak. He's not sinful. He's not dying. He is the Son of God, strong and sinless with an indestructible life. And not only that, He is not ministering among curtains that can be moth-eaten and get moldy. Have you ever thought what it must have been like to carry this thing around for 40 years in the desert and then set it up for hundreds of years in the Promised land, those curtains must have been an absolute mess by the time they were done. Or either they replaced them or something. But we have a high priest who ministers in a true tabernacle, no material realities up there. But all relationships between the Father and the Son and the love and the justice and the holiness and the goodness and the truth flowing back and forth between them and conspiring to manifest themselves in such a way as to make redemption for the people of God. That's the true tabernacle. Verse 1 says there's another thing. He is seated at the right hand of majesty. In the Old Testament, nobody could say that about themselves. He's loved by the Father. He's near to the Father. He's interceding with the Father. He's companion to the Father. And it's real. It's all real. Now look up at the verses at the end of chapter 7. The point of these verses in 26 to 28 is simply to celebrate, extol, lift up the superiority of Jesus, our high priest, above all those other priests. Let me point out five superiorities, just briefly. First, he's sinless, verse 26, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. They were all sinners, those former priests, not he. Number two, he didn't therefore have to offer any sacrifices for his own sin, but instead, he himself, as sinless, could become the sacrifice. Verse 27, he does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, since he didn't have any, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. What a radical difference between Christ and the Old Testament priests. They were all sinners. As they approached the tent and the meeting with God, they had to fear, I'm a sinner. If I go in there, what's going to be the case with me? And they had to deal with their own sins first and get all that covered. And then, in their weakness and sinfulness, they worked for us. And now Jesus is here and He's got no sins to deal with of His own. And therefore, not only that, He's able to take His body and make it the sacrifice for us, which is infinitely superior to any bull or goat. Number three, He's superior in that He did it once for all. I love that word in verse 27. You see it? This He did once for all. When he offered up himself. You know what that communicates to me? That word, ephapax in Greek, is just one word, once for all. It means that Christ is established in his death as the center of the history of grace. So that beginning with creation, right down to the cross, every act of grace that God performed looked forward to the cross as its foundation. 
And every act of grace that God is now performing in history and will perform to all eternity looks back to the cross as its foundation. So that the cross, the sacrifice of Christ's own flesh, is the center of the history of redemption. It looked forward to Him, we look back to Him, and He's the foundation of every good that came and every good that comes. And so I love the word, once for all, because it exalts Christ as the center of all things. The fourth superiority is in verse 28. It's a little bit different. Instead of a law, which was very changeable, Ordaining weak priests, you have an oath ordaining a son priest. Let's read that. Verse 28. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak. Every Levite, every son of Aaron was weak. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son. Now, what's that referring to? It's referring to Psalm 110, verse 4. We know that because it's quoted several times, and it goes like this. The Lord has sworn, there's the oath, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So in the Old Testament, the Mosaic law assigned the priesthood to weak, imperfect, sinful people. And that's why the law had to be changed. Whereas, when you get a few hundred years later to Psalm 110, a revelation comes and God says, I swear that my son is a priest according to the order, not of Aaron, not of the Levites, but of Melchizedek. They jump back over to that mysterious figure in the Old Testament who had no beginning, no ending as far as we could see, to signify and point toward Christ's indestructible life. And so he's superior in that his assignment does not come from a changeable law, but a permanent divine oath, and he is a son, not a mere, ordinary, weak human being. Finally, the fifth superiority, the word forever in verse 28. The oath appoints a son made perfect forever. Jesus never dies. He never has to be replaced. He has an indestructible life. He outlives all of his foes and enemies and he is therefore Always, like we saw last week in verse 25 of chapter 7, always able to save because he ever lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. What I thought of this morning, yesterday, as I was pondering this, was that sometimes children are anxious that their parents are going to die and they will be left alone. And sometimes... Parents are anxious that they're going to die and leave their children alone. Especially if they adopt little newborns when they're 50. And wonder if they'll be there at those crucial teenage years. And this text was so sweet to me yesterday because it says, 
the priesthood that you love, the interceding work of the Son for His children in heaven is forever. You're not forever, but He's forever. And He's pleading our cause. You remember back in chapter 4, verse 15, where it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every point like we are, and now put at the end of that, forever. And therefore, there's a sympathetic ministry happening, and it's going to go on happening whether I live or die in heaven forever. So let's sum it up now. The overarching point the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 is that you and I, Christian, have a high priest. The Son of God came into the world at Christmas time, born in a manger, lived a sinless life, died by offering up his own body as a sacrifice for our sin, rose triumphant over the grave and was installed as a permanent high priest at the right hand of the majesty where today and forever he prays for us and sympathetically welcomes us into the throne room of grace by prayer. And this high priest did not come to be the last and best shadow. He came to fulfill and therefore end the shadows. No more tabernacle. No more priesthood. No more sacrifices. No more vestments. No more feasts. No more dietary laws. All the shadows fulfilled as he steps around the aisle and is there to be worshipped. You remember near the end of his life, he walked out of the temple, Herod's great temple. Took him 46 years to build it. Only took us a year to build this. And he looked up and with a wave of his arm said, Destroy this temple. And in three days I will build it again. What's that? Three days? What he build? What did he build in three days? He didn't build this building. He didn't build a temple. He didn't build any building. He built Christ, risen, reigning, ascended, and receiving worship as the locus and the focus of all true spiritual worship. That's the replacement of shadows with reality. Now, I'm going to close with a word about worship, therefore. I couldn't help but do this. I, I was pondering this yesterday, and I thought, wow, this is dynamite stuff when it comes to worship. This is dynamite. I mean, explosive. I mean, devastating stuff about worship. So let me close with five minutes of implications for worship. The sacrificial offerings are gone. The priesthood is gone. The tabernacle is gone. The dietary laws are gone. In other words, the entire worship life 
of the Old Testament has been decimated. And in its place comes something radically spiritual. Not a new building, but a radically spiritual personal encounter with the living Christ. The external is real. But in the New Testament, the spiritual unseen reality of the living Christ present by His Spirit, filling, empowering, transforming, receiving worship, so pervades all externality that not one building, but every building is a place of worship. And not one place or act is worship, but every act is an act of worship. I get this from Romans 12.1. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of what? Worship. Everywhere and all the time, suits or pajamas, work or play. And then there's another text. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Not just here on Sunday morning. Pizza Hut, Diet Pepsi, Pepperoni is worship or blasphemy. And orange juice and the breakfast table. And your Sunday dinner in an hour. This is stunning. When you read the New Testament, mark this. All the religious objects and forms of the Old Testament are gone. Read the New Testament to try to find out how to worship. In vain. There is no authorization in the New Testament for worship buildings, worship dress, worship times, kinds of music, worship liturgy, worship size, 35-minute sermons, Advent poems, choirs, any instruments, candles. Nothing is authorized or forbidden. It is frightening and freeing. It's freeing because now in Christ one thing matters. Are we connecting with the living Christ in reality, not in externality? But in reality, are we connecting as we listen to a sermon? Are we connecting with the living God as we sing, as we listen, as we pray, stand, sit, move, talk in the commons? Are we connecting with the living God or is it not worship? We have freedom. We can build a building if we want. 
We can preach 35-minute sermons if we want. We can use candles if we want. We can have strings if we want. We can have little bells that tinkle and put robes on our children if we like or not. We're free. And this is frightening, isn't it? Because it also means that every single cherished tradition is without biblical mandate. And the question becomes, and I close with this, an exhortation and a question. Will we choose places and times and music and forms that kindle and carry a passion for the supremacy of God? And will we so design and pray through and think through and adapt and exclude in such a way that what really happens in the heart here is transferable into the peoples that we are called to reach. There's a reason for the stripped-down intensification and personalization of worship in the New Testament. You know what the reason is? The New Testament is a missionary document. It means for radical, intense, personal worship to be transferred to and incarnate in every culture and every people group in the world. Even though they may do it radically different than we. That's why the New Testament is stripped to form. It goes free into every culture. The Old Testament was a come-see religion. And so they built for it. Come-see, Queen of Sheba. Solomon in all his glory. The New Testament is a go-tell religion. Get moving. Out of here. And do not savor this place over much, lest it become an idol. There's a reason, folks, for why the shadows have gone. And it's so that we might go. Let's pray. Father, make us free. Make us culturally wise. Know that we at Bethlehem might find all those forms and all those instruments and all that music and all those ways of talking and seeing and decorating that do not obstruct or distract or hinder but only kindle and carry and release a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And now dismiss us into this day of worship and this week of praise, I pray in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen.